Hey, I'm Spencer Powell and welcome to Remodeler Stories, where we highlight remodelers. Every remodeler has a unique story and journey and we can all learn from each other. Stay tuned for a mix of inspiration, tactical tips, unique strategies, and some laughter. The remodeling business is tough, but rewarding, and we're all in this together. Let's kick this thing off. Before we get into today's show, let's talk about our show sponsor, Remodeler Growth Community. Remodeler Growth Community is a peer-to-peer networking group exclusively for remodelers. For a low monthly fee, you get access to some of the best minds in the industry, life-changing business strategies, and the ability to connect and learn from people who've walked the path you walk. Go to remodelercommunity.com to enroll today. 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back, so there's absolutely no risk to you. Go to remodelercommunity.com to enroll today. Today, I sit down with Peter Fallon of Fallon Custom Homes and Renovations. Peter founded the company in 1976. With more than 40 years of experience, he has established a company dedicated to the art of residential construction and renovation. Peter has the ability to see blueprints in three dimensions and a talent for incorporating additions with an architecturally coherent flow that is both functional and aesthetically pleasing. In turn, he has developed a passionate staff that is committed to quality craftsmanship and is focused on detail and design. Having managed numerous historic renovation projects, Peter has worked closely with the Beacon Hill Civic Association and the Back Bay Architectural Association. As a member of the Builders Association of Greater Boston, he is a licensed builder and home improvement contractor. Now for my conversation with Peter Fallon. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, let's give everyone a little bit of context. Who are you? What's the company and where are you guys located? So Peter Fallon, Fallon Custom Homes, we're located in Needham, Massachusetts. And I've been in this location for about 20 years, and this is my 46th year in business. That's super awesome. Let's start at the beginning, you know, 46 years ago, I guess. How did it all begin? What kind of prompted you to, to get things rolling? So I grew up on a farm in Western Massachusetts and always had a passion for construction. And my lifelong dream was to have a construction company. So I ended up getting into a vocational program and a vocational high school and did it three, you know, basically the first year the school built a home every year and that was sold and used money was used for college scholarships. My 11th and 12th grade, my you know junior and senior year, I worked a week and went to school a week in what was called a co-op program. And when I got out of high school, I was fortunate enough to get a job in the area that I grew up in, the Berkshires up in Lenox and Pittsfield, Mass. Not a lot of work going on in the 70s. It was a very slow time and interest rates were, you know, 18.5%. There was gas prices. There were a lot of things going on that had an impact on construction companies and just jobs in general. Yeah, we think this 5% is crazy, but uh, yeah, (laughs) 18%, that's a little different. Yeah, it's funny thinking about having a $100,000 loan with an $1,800 mortgage payment a month. So I was fortunate enough to convert a two-room schoolhouse, which I actually had gone to kindergarten there, the Abbey Lodge School, into a single-family home. And the company that owned the property was out of Rago Park in Queens. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, they came down often and saw the project and they owned in another apartment complex in Lenox. And this was a spec project for them. And they discovered that I was really running the project and 
At the end, they asked me if I'd like to move to New York and do a large-scale renovation, a 220-foot apartment complex that they had just purchased. And it was a very interesting way that they financed the work of the project, but I was to move to Islip, Long Island, and to take on that project, which was like a $7 million renovation when I was 19 years old wow. in 1977. <laughs> so when I moved in, there was a probably, I think there was 52 vacant units out of 224 units. And the buildings were like 165 by 43. And they let me spend this money. And I learned a lot because I had no idea how to estimate a job. So I was able to take a number of estimates, learn very quickly. And the pieces, the puzzle that I could perform, I had hired 10 people and I started doing the work myself, as well as overseeing the work that was ongoing from the other subcontractors that I was able to bring in and negotiate with. So it was a, a huge eye-opening experience for me of how the world works and, you know, all the maintenance workers were union and, I, you know, I had to negotiate with the business agent and the union. Every aspect of this was, was an eye-opening experience for somebody, you know, 19 years old. And that's where I was to get the foundation of what I was able to build my business from. Yeah, man, what an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, just I'm sure the speed of learning was just compressed, you know, for you in so many different areas. That's cool. Well, how did that project finish up? And then did, you know, what happened next? Did you stay there and do more projects or? So I was essentially a subcontractor there. I was never really a company employee. And I think they were smart and they didn't have to provide me with health insurance or any other benefits. <laughs> but the project went really well. There was a whole lot of bad things going on in terms of the occupants of many of the apartments, but the place had been run down for years. And my, you know, their goal was to bring it back. So we had laundry rooms, which was the only heated space in the basement. And unfortunately, women were being attacked there. The machines were always pried open. There was no way to really leave them there. So the maintenance crew would go back and we had this huge maintenance building where they could actually physically drive a vehicle into. And they often, the guys just sat there and drank coffee and that's where everything required to do repairs were stored. So what I did is I brought maintenance stations into each of the heated spaces in the building so the guys didn't have to go back to the maintenance shed. And I took the maintenance shed and made it to a commercial laundromat. And unbeknownst to me, within five miles of the place, there was not a commercial laundromat. So we had to end up hiring security and the place was jammed. And, you know, given that I was a teenager, I had put a Mondo sound system in there and, you know, the owners really let me have some fun. And, you know, we had a, you know, Olympic sized pool and he didn't want to talk. The owners didn't want to have lifeguards. So I did paddle tennis courts over the pool and it was all fenced and ready to go. So there's so many things that, that were just kind of fell into place and they let me do and make a whole bunch of decisions with their money. And when I left, there was a huge waiting list to get into the place. You know, there was a serious, unfortunately, a infestation of cockroaches. Mm. And how I dealt with that is because we had 50 plus vacant units, I moved entire buildings out and I started moving everybody around. I sulfur bombed each building individually. And all the people that weren't paying rent really discovered that we were making this amazing effort. You know, we did all the hallways over. We did the stoops, side of the buildings. It was a great facelift. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, well, that's cool. Yeah, it sounds like definitely a very positive outcome at the end and occupancy problem, but then also just like raising the standard. So yeah, what, what happened next after you finished that up? 
So I actually moved to San Francisco for a while and I started a business there, but I think I'm too much of an A personality to live in California. <laughs> <laughs> People there were, were doing alternate things with, with their time and effort. And I, I was never impressed with the work ethic of the people that lived. I, I lived in Marin County for not quite a year. I just couldn't take it. And I ended up moving back east. And I started a business in, in Boston, moved from New York to Boston and started my business here. And I've been here now since 1980. And it was a great move for me. Boston's been extremely kind to me. And I love it here. It's, it's a wonderful place to live. Small, manageable city. Suburbs are easy. You know, I raised my family in Wellesley, Mass., which, you know, great town. I do a lot of, done a lot of work there over the years. That's cool. Yeah. So when you, when you first moved back to Boston then and started like that phase of the journey, what kinds of projects were you focused on then? Because I had so much of a history in uh, apartments, I took on the management of a couple of hundred apartments on Beacon Hill. And I did all the repairs and oversaw all the renovations on the various buildings. And I did that for a few years. And in the meantime, I had bought some property and you know, was going to look into renovating the property. And I really wanted to have more of, I wouldn't say a speculative stake in the world, but property values were really escalating in the 80s. And it was hard for somebody with not a lot of money to jump into that marketplace. So I did eventually buy a building and I renovated the building. I sold it as six condominiums. And that was to get my foundation to purchase other buildings and properties and, and you know, obviously working for others as well as doing projects for myself. And I also wanted to spec building, started building, you know, custom homes on spec. Gotcha. Yeah. So it sounds like quite a variety there. I'm always curious because people in building or remodeling, I think there's always a huge opportunity to also be building your own investment portfolio of real estate. Is that something that you kind of continued on with? And that's always been like a part of the company strategy or mainly focused uh, doing work for, for other people? So I think that component of my business has been the most successful part. So I also would build a house every two years and move. Mm, nice. Clinton changed the tax law, which allows you know a married couple to take 500000 tax-free. And with the escalation of real estate values, it was a great opportunity for me. I've done spec houses up to $8 million on spec. So I've done, you know, my average spec house is in the four to, you know, plus million range. So what we do on spec, most people would consider as a, you know, highly customized home. So about 20 years ago, I started a mill shop and I became frustrated with timing. And a lot of cabinet companies were not as well organized business business organized. Yes, they could make cabinetry, but they didn't have schedules that they adhere to well. And I've had projects completely finished with the absence of a kitchen and vanities. Nothing more embarrassing than trying to give a client a house. (laughs) You can't get a CO without a kitchen or Yeah. (laughs) So I, out of frustration, started a mill shop. And I just recently purchased a 16,000 square foot building that I'm converting now into uh, moving my mill shop that it was very close by to my current space that I occupy, which, you know, I bought a warehouse building and put my mill shop in there and I outgrew it very quickly and moved and stayed about 18 years in that location. And a friend of mine recently sold the property, long story, but I'm, I'm, you know, my rent is tripled, so I have to move. 
and uh, he was giving me a great deal, but we did a lot of work for him. He was another builder, but so I had to buy a building and move. So it's a, you know, as my friends would call it, it's a high class problem. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. Well, and I love when those types of things happen because it just shows you how much like entrepreneurs are looking for those opportunities. You're like, Hey, I have this pain point around cabinets and like, okay, I'm just going to go scratch my own itch and solve my own problem. And then I'm sure you've been able to solve that problem for others by solving it for yourself. And yeah, that's, that's super cool. Around like moving to Boston, starting like the first few years, what do you think were maybe one or two of the most challenging like moments or just things that you dealt with, like kind of like lifting that company off the ground? I know you had a lot of experience prior, but that was kind of when you were setting roots down, so to speak. Right. But primarily that was with someone else's money. Yeah. So for me is I would go to work from, from seven to three thirty, you know, for someone else basically to make a paycheck because self-employed or not, you're always working for someone. And I think people have this illusion that they're, <laughs> they're off on their own, so to speak, when in reality, you, you know, you got to get the work done to get a paycheck and regardless, you know, who you're working for. Anyway, I would, I took two years of my life. And I worked seven days a week from 7 a.m. to like 11.30 every night for two years. And I was able to gut and renovate this building at the same time that I was working full time on mm -hmm. other projects, you know, that people would hire me to do. And when I sold the condos, that was to change everything because it, it's, you know, gave me a lot of cash I never had before. So it was allowing me to buy property and you know if you don't know the boston area you know back bay the south end was emerging at that time so there was a lot of opportunity for me and i ended up moving from the city in 89 to wellesley and bought my first house in wellesley didn't realize it that i was the first person to ever build a million and a half dollars spec house in wellesley at any rate that you know so i started to to take on more challenges financial challenges that would hopefully make me some money versus working every day, which I always did. I've always had my construction company, my development company, and you know, for the past 22 years had the, the mill workshop, which is something that allows me a lot of freedom because we make a, a lot of furniture pieces for interior decorators, and we can make anything there, literally anything that you can imagine it can be produced in there. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's that's been a fun part of the business. What do you think has been like one of the most rewarding parts of building something for yourself, you know, starting your own company and, and working on growing it. It's funny. I think that it's very hard to sit back and take an honest assessment of what has been achieved and, and without like blowing your own horn, I've been extremely lucky. So many things fell into place for me. For example, why I brought up the beginning of my career, how, how many people work hard and never get a break or an opportunity and everybody says, well, you know, it's how you make your own break. It's how you respond. But in reality, I was very fortunate and I was able to capitalize on my good fortune and take it to other places. And my knowledge, having a vocational high school education is very limited. So realizing, you know, I don't know what I don't know. I know real estate. I know how to fix it, repair it, build it. And I'm, you know, become an expert after 46 years in every aspect of real estate. So I can look at a building, realize how, how much it's going to take to fix it, put together numbers. Those are things that I can do very well and manage them very well. 
So I have stuck within my parameter and what I know, and that's where I feel has been my success. And I, I love what I do. So I get up every day and, and love what I do. And why would I stop? You know, people want to buy my business and essentially have me go out to pasture, but I just have no interest in doing so. It's yeah. just not there for me. Yeah, when you're having fun, you know, no reason to stop. So <laughs> I like it. Hey guys, I know that if you listen to Builder Funnel Radio, you are hyper aware of the fact that the way people shop and buy, it's changed dramatically over the years. And for the last 10 years, really since I started doing all this, helping my uncle's remodeling division scale up from about 2 million to 10 million, We've been helping remodelers and builders and contractors all over the country really refine their marketing systems. And I recently decided to kind of bottle all of that up into my first book. And that book is called The Remodeler Marketing Blueprint. And you can pick up a copy by going to the website, remodelermarketingblueprint.com. You can also search for it on Amazon or wherever books are sold online. But I highly recommend you go over to the website because we've got some cool book bonuses that go along with that if you pick up a few extra copies for your friends and colleagues or your teammates. So it would mean a lot to me if you've been listening to this podcast for a while or even just a few episodes, if you've ever gotten any value out of it, head over to remodelermarketingblueprint.com and snag your copy today. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, well, I'm sure you've bumped into like a crazy project or client story or something through 46 years you've been able to work on such a variety of different projects like anything coming to mind that was particularly crazy or unique well the interesting part is i work for a lot of people that are publicly known so i often never discuss those things and family names but yes i've been involved with many very unusual things and you know without going into great detail about who the people were, which makes them primarily the most interesting is, you know, I had a customer who wanted to know every billionaire that I worked for. And I said, but I don't disclose that information. <laughs> yeah. And he, she, she was an unusual, very unusual customer. And we managed all the family's properties, various buildings for about seven years. And unfortunately, the dad died who I really loved. And before he died, he took me out fishing on his boat. And I caught a 200-pound tuna. Oh, wow. It's hard to explain because they, they have personal chefs. And one day, we're sitting in my conference room talking about the project. And they're angry that, at the time, their dad was alive. But he wouldn't have agreed to buy a Learjet for them. And they were talking about having to fly domestically. And I said, can we not have that conversation in my conference room? It's really uncomfortable. And the mom gets up and scratches this mustard stain on the daughter's shirt. And she said, I pay for a private chef in your house. And she said, that is McDonald's or Burger King. So she runs out, one's driving a Bentley, the other one's in an S-Class Mercedes. And she gets in the car and pulls out the McDonald's bags from underneath the seat. This is in a conference room full of people. <laughs> I had a whole staff in there, subcontractors, <laughs> other people from my company. and. The whole meeting ends. They start fighting out in the parking lot when she goes through the daughter's car and is screaming at her that she pays to have a full-time chef live in her house. And you're going to McDonald's. And the, the whole premise was that she was overweight. The daughter was overweight and they were very concerned for her. And 
I could go on for hours about crazy stories like that, where I can't mention family names, but if I did, I would be, you know, up probably hiding in my house. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I'm sure there are dozens and dozens. And even if you worked with, with that family for seven years, there were probably interactions like that where well, you're just... For, for example, <laughs> we were putting the last project we did before the dad died. We were putting in a pool in a pool house and there was a pine tree that, you know, it's a three or $400 tree. He wanted to cut down and she didn't. This was in March. This fight went on until September. <laughs> we had to finish the pool and close it at the same time. So all summer, they, they couldn't have the grandkids go in the pool. And one of them would call me and say, blah, blah, blah. You've got to get him to agree to leave the tree. He would call me up and say, F her. She's not getting the tree. And I'm like, you guys need marriage counseling. It's, <laughs> I'm just, you know, so yeah. as everybody knows in this business, you become a, a counselor of sorts. However you want to slice it, you have to sit and listen to all of the, uh, the stories. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say that. I feel like in probably many sales professions where you're providing something custom and tailored, you run into that dynamic where you end up being kind of a therapist of sorts. <laughs> Pretty funny. You know, thinking about your your journey, if you were to like pick out a few things to maybe somebody that's at the beginning of that journey, even if they're three, five, eight years in, what are a few things that you would want to pass along to somebody that uh, that maybe you learned the hard way and you could shortcut their their path through that? So I think that unfortunately, I don't think that my I think the key is staying right size to what mm-hmm. you're capable of handling. And when people try to grow too quickly or take on work and projects that they're not qualified to, to do, they end up losing money in the end. And I think the key that I would counsel, and I do counsel some smaller guys, and they have been offered larger projects and say, you know, if you say no, you'll never get the opportunity. But when you say yes, make sure that you have the people in place to manage it and that you're not spread out with all your smaller projects with people, everybody complaining that you're not there. So I think when, when you're a sole proprietorship, it's so hard because you have to bid the work, do the work, any warranty or follow-up work you have, to, you have to do. And that's the part that I became way too frustrated early on in my career and said, I have to hire people. And I didn't want to have people in my office because I was so cheap. So I used to work literally from 6 a.m. till midnight every day for 17 years. I did that. Wow. All, when I had... 43 people. I used to do the payroll. My healthcare, before Massachusetts changed their healthcare program, part of people's compensation packages were their healthcare, which, you know, it was paid directly by me. And I used to, you know, you'd spend, even then it was like between 30 and 35,000 a month for healthcare for my people. And when you look at the expenses to have taking on, I had a person call me for some advice last week. And I was sitting home. I was two weeks stuck sitting at home with COVID. And he has an opportunity to take on an enormous project. And I said, how would you be qualified financially to handle this project? If for some reason they didn't pay you for a week, what would you do to all the people that are on the site? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, (laughs) they've already had two contractors that they fired. And you've been the, the, the guy kind of managing it for them. And now they want you to take it over, but you're not technically qualified to manage that scale project on any level financially. And that's the part that people I don't think understand. When you take on a multi-million dollar project, if somebody is slow in paying, 
for you to keep things going, you have to have some of your own money that unfortunately you put into your business. Does it come back? Yes, if you manage your business well. If it doesn't, it may never come back. And, and that's the part that you know, money you made, you don't want to give it back by growing too quickly and thinking that you're going to make all this money. And if the project isn't managed well, you'll likely lose money. And you could do $10 million in volume and, and not make much at all. Yeah, that's really, yeah, really good advice. Yeah, I'm also curious in thinking about your journey, were there any pivot points where you like kind of took a right turn or you made like a big decision that you felt like were pretty critical to getting you to where you are today on your current path? So it's interesting you say that because I've been through some major recessions. The one in 89 and 90 was particularly bad. And, and given your age, it's probably not something that's in your rearview mirror. And the crazy thing about Massachusetts is the main lender was taken over by the FDIC, who gave all of the in-house loans for, for developers, builders. And they started this thing called recall management. And they basically called in everyone's loan, whether it's performing or not. Hmm. And they were closing up shop. The policy in which they invoked from the government was one that brought hundreds of properties on the market at once. So what happened was there was no way to establish the value of a property. So when you're in construction and property values are going up, yes, people will invest in, in a, you know, an appreciating asset. When it's depreciating and nobody knows what its value is and the ground is, is coming close, there's no way people are going to start to spend money in construction. So how to devise a way to keep your business going was very complicated for me. And the lawyer who came here from Washington ended up buying Barry Nolan's house. Again, you probably don't remember the show Hard Copy, and, but he was selling his house. And I had agreed to mediate this conveyance because there were a lot of problems with the house. Hmm. And this woman that they brought in, and she's probably, you know, this is back in like 91, I guess is she, she's long gone, but I, I don't want to end up in a litigation with her because she probably <laughs> peel my skin off and, and <laughs> watch me bake. But the, the person that they brought in from the FDIC was just a very difficult person. And she allowed no, no prisoners. Everybody was going to go. <laughs> Jeez. And, and, but what was hard here is I owned probably eight different properties at that point. And the banks now, I, I had another bank that basically went out of business and I kept putting my money, my rent monies and other things aside where many people didn't. And when it came time for the FDIC to call on you and say, where is the mortgage money that you owe us for the past, whatever, eight months. And a lot of people said, whoa, I have no money. I can't pay you that. And you know, so I was very responsible, kept all the money, had all the accounts. It still was very painful because today, like for example, a building that I bought for $156,000 now is worth about probably 3.5 million. But wow. at the time, at the time, it was probably worth less than that. And yeah. the building had rents that were coming in, there were about 150,000 a year. All the people started gathering in the buildings and decided unilaterally, we're not going to pay rent. Mm. Just not going to pay. So much very, it's, there's so many things that happen along the way with owning properties, ending up in housing court where people didn't pay, crazy things that happened, physical violence that happened in buildings, even in the nicest locations. 
it's uh, it's never easy. It's never simple. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. Well, good on you to to be prepared for that moment. You know. <laughs> so. Right. But what I'm getting to is the pivot point was when the economy started to emerge in like '92. That's when I decided that it was so slow in construction that I would start to build spec houses mm. as a secondary means of income. And, and I started to do that. And that was really what bailed me out quickly. And there was a lot of properties, land you could, you know, land you could buy that where we live, everything we do is primarily a teardown. But what happened in the recession in 89 and 90, a lot of people that had a building lot that they could sell and have been paying taxes on decided to sell it in some very exclusive, nice locations where you could get a lot of money for a house. So that's when I embarked on the spec house building. And that really was to bring my, you know, bring me back financially that much faster than trying to do it just with my construction company. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And it feels like from everyone I've talked to that goes through recessionary times and really tough times, like if you're able to position yourself just to be able to get through that in a healthy way, even if it doesn't look pretty, but like then you're set up for that opportunity because yeah, everything goes on sale and it's like, well, you, you had the knowledge and you're in the location, you could see it. You're like, these things are undervalued or there's opportunity here and everyone else is afraid. So yeah, that's super cool. That sounds like that Yeah, was a big pivot point. I'm curious, kind of like fast forwarding to today, where are you, where are you going over the next few years? I know you said you're going to work till you die. So I'm curious, like what the, what the vision looks like, you know, moving forward. So currently, I have a project up in Maine going on for someone from Chicago, and I have a, I have a number of large projects going on. So I'm very busy in that respect. And thankfully, I have some great people in place. I've had people with me 28 years to work for my company. Amazing. The, the median is probably about 12 out of the group that I have out of 20. And it's difficult because a lot of people are retiring. So finding anyone young who has an interest in, in knowing about construction, because I, the hard part for me is there's a lot of people that own construction companies, but they hire people that have the knowledge. They themselves are business people and they can manage the financial, financial side. But my strength is really my knowledge base and how to do the construction. So the business is always that, you know, the management of the business has always been kind of secondary and my marketing was never done well. But where I'm going is... I'm still, you know, going to continue to build spec houses. I'm just bought this 16,000 square foot building to expand my cabinet shop and start to market to more to other people. And my construction company is booming right now. So everybody, I could hire people if I wanted to, but unfortunately, the candidates that come across do not have the level of, of knowledge that, you know, they want the money, but they can't manage this, the kind of projects that we do. That's the hard part is finding the people that can do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge challenge right now. Well, and speaking of challenges, I got a couple of questions to wrap us up. One is just, what do you see as maybe the core one or two challenges that, you know, as an industry, we really need to, to grapple with and, and work on solving over the next, you know, 12, 24 months? So, I mean, my personal opinion is manpower. And the reason why I say that is because the median age of construction workers is probably about 46 years old in the United States. Mm, yeah. So without any young people having an interest in construction, we're going to have to invoke the curiosity by adding dollars to the bottom line. 
which right now construction has never been more expensive. So I've tracked building for the last 25 years of a computer. And I account for every dollar that comes in and goes out of this company. And I have watched where I have built when I, you know, kind of joke about a spec house, where I sold a spec house for 750000 that now is a $2.1 million house because of my age and the escalation of values in these towns. But to build that same house today, I bought the land and built the house and sold it for seven fifty. I couldn't, first of all, I couldn't buy the land for seven fifty. And and building the house would be like, you know, way over a million dollars. So all of those things be relative. And I have watched how much I have to pay my people to keep them. Mm -hmm. Everybody has there's headhunters all over the place trying to find key people to move to another company. And and I understand people are not happy, they move around. But the cost of labor and skilled labor is impossible to find right now. And we've run ads and indeed for months and months and months. And in my cabinet shop, to have somebody that can really build something with their hands, that knows what they're doing. And some of the unique projects that we get, it's impossible. You know, and I just had the person that ran the shop retire. And the junior guy has taken his place, but he doesn't have the same level of experience because the previous person could take any antique and copy it and he had a hobby of collecting veneer mm. it's a barn full of hundred year old veneer so when he can make a piece make an antique piece it actually has hundred year old veneer and even an expert would have trouble telling it apart from the actual piece so his passion how many people have that passion where they would have a barn full of hundred year old veneer to fix and work in antiques it's so hard to find people like that. It's next to impossible. I know. And that, and that definitely is one that has come up over and over and over again. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big cultural shift. You know, everybody said, you know, we were all my generation, we were all preach, go get a four-year degree, you know, and, you know, we haven't sent enough younger folks into construction and into the trades. And yeah, I, I think that's spot on. Well, Peter, this has been awesome to wrap up one piece of advice that. Other custom builders, other remodelers, business owners like yourself that are maybe sitting out there listening, one piece of advice or final words of wisdom that you'd want to share or pass along? I, I can kind of laugh and say, if you stay right size, you don't spend money you don't have. And our business, we bring in millions of dollars, but none of that. I never even really look at my business account because it's not my money. And the first bookkeeper I hired, she looked at my bank account and she said, you're rich. I said, wait till Friday. <laughs> There'll be nothing left on Friday or very little. So that the key to this business is money management and, and making sure that you don't spend more than you have. I think that's the part with staying right size. You know, when people tell me they make all this money in their business, and I was asked them, well, if you went out of business today, would you have to file for bankruptcy? And people become often very offended in the construction business when you ask them that. But but it is staying right size in every aspect from the job you take to the money that you spend and how it's managed. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Well, yeah, Peter, thank you again for spending the time and sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Remodeler Stories. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Every month we pick a winner and send out a free copy of my book, The Remodeler Marketing Blueprint. Just leave a review over on iTunes to enter to win. See you next time.